So we will be in Hosea today. If you'll turn there, and we will jump in. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good. You are awesome. You are such a a God who's worthy to be praised. There's no God but you. You are a Savior. You are our King. Thank you for redeeming us, for revealing yourself to us, for being merciful to us, Lord, for opening our eyes to see our need for salvation and forgiveness and to receive the hope that's in you that you freely give by the grace of God. We thank you for allowing us to read your word and to celebrate you, to praise you, and to learn from you. God, cause us to hear you today. Thank you that you do speak and you have wonderful truths to reveal about yourself through your word. And so cause us to draw near, Lord, as you draw near to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosea chapter 6. So uh, in thinking about the message, I was brought to think of King Saul and that God had told him through prophet Samuel to destroy the Amalekites because of the sin that they had committed against God's people. And Saul and the people, however, they were not about to let this prime rib and uh, lamb cutlets get away, and they kept the best of the flocks and the herds under the pretense of giving it as a sacrifice to God. Now, that certainly was not good because God had commanded them to destroy everything, and they were going to be partakers of those sacrifices, right? They got to eat of the sacrifice they brought. So there was a self-serving motive in their disobedience. And that's when Samuel famously told King Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. The irony of sacrifice is it can be offered, so it's something given, but with a self-serving motive. It's given to receive a benefit or to avoid a problem. People make sacrifices all the time um, that you make to hope, hopefully you want it to pay off, right? Who, who sacrifices to nothing? Everyone makes sacrifices for something. Like you'll get up early in the morning to, to uh, go golfing because you hope to have some enjoyment or some exercise. Uh, people make financial sacrifices so their children will benefit from that by going to a, a good quality, edu- having a quality education, having a good uh, university experience. Athletes, they make sacrifices of time and money. They hire coaches so that they can make it big, so they can make it to the pros. We, we're all the time, we're making these sacrifices to get something. So we're giving something with the aim of hoping it pays off for our benefit. And people are frustrated when they sacrifice money and time and effort, and it doesn't seem to pay off. They don't get those immediate results that they're looking for. The same is true when people sacrifice to God. They sacrifice to God. They sacrifice because they wanted the blessings from God, and they hope to avoid the curses of disobeying God. So that's what that was their motive. No one sacrifices for nothing. If you make a sacrifice, there's a reason you're making a sacrifice. It's good to know what that reason might be. The people of the northern kingdom, they made sacrifices to God and idols, hoping to receive benefits from them. They wanted to receive uh, good harvests, and the rain would come in due season. But God would not accept their offerings. He would not accept their sacrifices 
uh, because they didn't know him, they weren't walking in his ways, it was kind of like a, an unfaithful woman imagining that her husband will overlook her infidelity because she made him breakfast. He's like, I'm not going to receive that from you. I'm not going to congratulate you on this great breakfast when I know you've been around last night and you haven't been home. You, you actually don't even care about me, but you just, you want to be accepted by me because of this? No. And so that's a similar situation that God had with his people. Since Israel would not repent of her sin, God would not accept the offerings, and he allowed affliction. He allowed trouble into their lives. And he would bring judgment upon them. And he says in Hosea 5.15, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. God is patient. He's kind. He says, I have afflicted them, but I'm going to return to my place where they know where to find me. When they're ready, they'll come to me. And they're going to come to me earnestly. They're going to search for me and find me. So he didn't go to a place where he couldn't be found or a secret hideout. He went to his place. They knew where to find him when they were ready. In their affliction, they would seek him. So Hosea 6, starting in verse 1. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Affliction It would work in the lives of God's people to come to their senses, recognize their need for God, repent, realizing that their idols were impotent to save them. All these sacrifices were in vain. Their idols were not helping. The rain wasn't coming. The enemies still came upon them. God was the only one who delivered them, and they needed to come to him alone. Notice that it wasn't the devil, it wasn't the enemies, but they knew God did it. God took responsibility for afflicting them. Some find this hard to reconcile with the idea of God being loving and kind, gracious and merciful, but it's not hatred that prompts a father to discipline his son or his daughter. God could have justly wiped Israel off the map for forsaking his covenant, but instead he was patient with them. He intervened with affliction because they were literally destroying themselves. They were destroying themselves. So he moved to correct them, not to destroy them. There would be destruction of their towns and their villages and of lives, but the nation would be saved. They would come to him. Does it seem strange that you would return to the one who afflicted you? Well, I did that when I did my knee a few years ago. I tore a knee ligament, I went to a surgeon, He inflicted pain, real pain. That was like exquisite pain, I'll say. And weeks later, I had a follow-up appointment, and I went back to the man who had used a scalpel to cut my skin and a drill to go through my bones. And I wasn't afraid of the needles or the things that he had in his office because he did that, he afflicted me to bring healing and restoration. If I ever wanted to walk or run normally again, I needed to get my ACL fixed. And it's not going to heal itself. So I sought a specialist. And he afflicted me. I was already afflicted because I was injured. But he afflicted me to heal me, to bring me to a place where I could walk and run and be strengthened again. 
So God, he had afflicted them, but it was not to destroy them. It was to redeem them, to reconcile them, to restore them. There's this great passage in Deuteronomy. Well, there's tons of great passages, but Deuteronomy 32, the, the Song of Moses, after they had the deliverance over their enemies, well, this is a different song that Moses taught the people before his passing in Deuteronomy 32. Could you please turn to verse 37 of Deuteronomy 32? And if you have the time, I, I suggest you make the time and you read through this whole chapter because it's so prophetic about where Hose people were in Hosea's day, that God had delivered them, and yet the people had uh, walked away from God. They had forsaken him. They had turned to idols in their prosperity. That's exactly what we see in Hosea's day. God would afflict his people, and he'd bring, bring to their understanding that the idols they were worshiping, they couldn't serve them, save them. So Deuteronomy 32, verse 37 God would say, he would say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. God showed his power in not causing things to be born, but by killing and raising to life again. He wounds, but he provides healing for bodies and minds and souls, redemption. He kills our self-confidence by the law, and he provides new, new life and salvation by grace. He wounds our pride to heal with forgiveness and mercy. I love the order. It's not, it's not the other way. He's like, I make alive and I kill. No, he says, I kill and I make alive. Because he's a redeemer. He's a rescuer. He's a savior. And then we see this, an, an allusion to Christ who would be killed as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He would rise from the dead, proving God's power and victory over death and sin and the life that he gives to all who trust in him. So the wounding comes before the healing. This killing, this making alive, the wounding and healing, it's not just pre-salvation, but it's part of our ongoing refinement as we follow Jesus. When we're, it says in James 1, 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There's something that we need affliction provides, that trials provide, that we're not going to get another way. God knows what we need better than we do. When I go to the doctor to say, what's wrong with my knee? It really hurts. I needed professional advice. I needed skills and knowledge that I did not have. And sometimes we don't go to God when we have a need, but God sees that need and he'll graciously meet it in a way that is unorthodox to us, unimaginable. Verse 2, it says that Israel affirmed in God, he was their only hope of revival for themselves or the nation. And the, the end of this revival, this resurrection, was that we may live in his sight. Isn't that cool? 
when people speak of revival today, it sounds sometimes like a, like a benefit we want for ourselves rather than for God's sake. But he says, I have raised you up so that you may live in my sight. There is abundant life in Christ. Sometimes we want, we want the power. We want the ability to impact the world. We want to see God working in obvious ways so we can feel like our sacrifices or our efforts aren't in vain. We want something tangible that we can see and find comfort in that rather than, so we can, we can actually seek revival rather than seeking God and miss it completely. Revival is from God for God, that we can live in his sight, that we could be healed and restored for his glory. We're called to seek God in light of our personal need because we realize despite our knowledge, we are sleepy and numb and careless and forgetful and good as dead unless he revives us. We can't be fruitful unless he causes us to be. Dying to self and obedience to Christ in obedience with, without feeling entitled to receive anything but expecting that God is going to answer that prayer because we know it's his will to revive and restore. Hosea 6.3 Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. The King James puts a different slant on it. It says, Then we shall know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning. Then it continues the same. We need to know of the Lord to know to seek him, right? We wouldn't have known to look for the Lord or to trust in his promises except he revealed himself through the scripture. As we, grow, as we follow Jesus, we grow in our knowledge of God, and the way we grow is through obedience to what he has revealed. Faith demonstrated by obedience, that's the path to maturity. If you want to grow, obey Jesus. Obey what God has said. It's not just by knowing things that you grow. It says that God's going forth is established as the morning. You guys expect the sun to rise today? You could open up your mobile device and find out pretty much to the minute when that sun is going to hit our visible horizon because of latitude, longitude, coupled with time zones and satellites. The predictions can be quite accurate. And in Hosea's day, they knew that the sun was going to come up tomorrow, that it's predictable. The rain, they knew when it was a good time to plant, when it was the good time to harvest, when it was a dangerous season to travel by sea. So God's going forth is established as a morning. There's a, in one sense, God's ways are predictable in that he has revealed his character and we can know something about him. His ways are higher than ours. However, we can know him by what he has revealed through his word. Again, in Deuteronomy, I'm going to be going to several different passages today all over the place. Um, but focusing on the merciful characteristic of God. We can know he's merciful. That's one thing that will always mark his character. And we see this here 
in the law, where God in the law speaks of the latter days when his people would turn from him, but he'd be merciful to them. Deuteronomy 4, 28 through 31, he says, when they're scattered, and there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wooden stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. Emphatically, Malachi 3.5, he says, For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So God's merciful, he does not change, he has been merciful and will continue to be merciful. Just like the sun rises every morning, God is merciful. So the next time you, you, you see that sun rising, think about the mercy of God that is going forth, it's ordained from the beginning, and he will outlive the sun. When, God turn, when God's people turn from idols to the Lord, he would not forsake them. He would not destroy them. He would not forget them because he's merciful and does not change. The theological term for this is immutable. He does not change. Hosea 6, verse 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goes away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God, it's almost like he breaks the third wall and he says, guys, what could I do to you? What more could I have possibly done to reveal myself to you, to help you? to move you along. Uh, I brought you out of Egypt. I showed my power over those idols there. Haven't I proven my worthiness to be trusted and obeyed when I led you 40 years through the wilderness and I provided for all of your needs, the clothes you needed, the food, and I brought you into the land that I promised I defeated those enemies. You saw my presence on Sinai before you entered in, the Jordan, it parted. Like you can go through their history and God's revealed himself. He's, he confused their enemies. He struck them with blindness. He caused their enemies as they were besieging them and the people were starving to death to hear a rumor and leave the field of battle when they had it won. Like over and over, God did this and, and he raised up judges and priests and prophets to speak to his people. He gave them his word. He said, guys, hear what I'm saying. I've been a faithful rock of salvation all this time, but your faithfulness, it's like a morning cloud. It, it burns off by midday. It's gone without a trace. Because they departed from God, he says, I've sent my prophets to hew you, to cut you down. Uh, and, and ironically, in Hebrews 11, it says that some of the prophets were sawn asunder. So God sent a prophet to speak cutting words to the people, say, hey guys, you're going about this the wrong way. You are in sin. And they said, well, we don't want to listen to you. And they plotted against them and killed them. The people understood the king that ruled over them, he had power of life of, of death over them. 
but they didn't recognize that the king of kings who created them, he also has power over kings and everyone. And he says, as the sun shines upon the land, so the judgment will come. You can dig a hole, you can build a fortress. It's not going to stop the sun from rising, the sun from shining, how the light illuminates the earth. In the same way, my judgment is going to come upon this land. You cannot escape it. Verse 6, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Because people did not know God or seek him, though they were deeply involved in religious activity. That's something we can't forget. They were still offering sacrifices to God. They were going to the high places. And they imagined that God was pleased with their sacrifice as though they were meeting some divine need of his. But he says many times in the Psalms and Prophets, I'm not hungry for meat. I don't just... I'm not going to overlook sin because I like the smell of barbecue. Like, I'm not thirsty for the blood of goats and rams and oxen. The sacrifices are really to cover your sin. It's meeting your need. It's not meeting a need that I have. It's so you can have fellowship with me, the holy God, because you have sinned. And if the sin is going to be atoned for or washed, there must be blood shed according to the law. God's always merciful. He delights in those who show mercy to others more than sacrifice. The sacrifices, because they had not repented, it was like a foul smell that stunk to high heaven, and he smelled that hypocrisy. The irony is they sacrificed for the hope of personal gain. And God wanted people to know him, not just know how to lawfully slaughter an animal. That he wanted to be known. To obey God is better than sacrifice, yet obedience to God in a fallen world, it requires sacrifice, doesn't it? There are sacrifices we make in following God, and these are fitting and right. To sacrifice our pride, to not say something when we really feel entitled and justified to say something. To say something we don't feel like saying, though God's directed us to, because we're really afraid about what other people, how they might react or respond. It's a sacrifice to voluntarily lay down our will to walk in God's will. And in the eyes of the world, and sometimes ours too, it is a sacrifice to give as we have freely received. Listen to what David said after he was um, called out on his sin. He said this in Psalm 51, 15 through 17. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. People brought oxen and herds hoping that God would be impressed by their gifts and sacrifice. God declined to receive those offerings because of the pride and arrogance in the people. Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And if you were bringing, there there were let's say, different sacrifices you could bring depending upon your wealth. And there were certain, if you brought an oxen, it was definitely much more status 
and you appeared much more pious in the eyes of people than that one who came only bringing a couple of doves or a pigeon. That would be a despised. You're like, oh, what kind of commitment do you have to God, you know, bringing a pigeon? Like, look, look at this herd that I have brought to show my piety before God. There was some status there. It's like, who do you want to be the leader of the village? Well, the guy who obviously loves God because he's sacrificing so much. God says, you know what's a sacrifice I'll never despise? If you come to me empty-handed with a broken heart, humble, just looking for me, seeking me, I will not despise that. I will not turn that away. I will receive that. Hosea 6, 7. But like men, they transgressed the covenant, as they, there they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. God and his people had made a covenant. That's an agreement that he would be their God. They would be his people. They would obey his word. And he says, you have broken the covenant. You have been treacherous. You've gone through the motions of being obedient, but you've shed innocent blood. They were like someone wearing their wedding band looking for lovers. Gilead and Shechem, those were two cities of refuge under the law. If you were a manslayer, if you had accidentally killed someone, you could flee to these six cities from the avenger of blood. Now, the avenger of blood had a responsibility under the law to shed the blood of those who had killed. And, but if you had killed someone accidentally and you went to the city of refuge, there would be a trial and the priests before the high priest and then you or priests that were there would make a judgment concerning your case that it was indeed manslaughter and you had to remain there until the death of the high priest. So he points out these two cities, which should have been a city of refuge where the manslayer would go. That's where murderers were living and the priests were guilty. Premeditated murder, justified theft. The people who were supposed to be upholding the law, they were treacherous against God. The word lewdness here, this is wickedness worthy of death under the law. In other places, it's used to describe rape, incest, prostitution, cult prostitution, and adultery. And says, God's like, what I see out there in my people, it's horrible. I've seen horrible things. And uh, we hear about one thing, and we're like, that's horrible. But imagine God, who not only knows about everything, but he knows the intents of the heart and the plans that people are making, and the things that they think about, the things they want to do. And I get overwhelmed by just one thing that I hear about, and I, I cannot fathom. He's like, it's horrible. It's horrible what my people have done. Judah's not off the hook either. He's, he says, uh, there is a harvest appointed for you as well. There would be a judgment coming where God would harvest some of the people in judgment and others would be sent into captivity. When he returned their captivity, they had come out of captivity in Egypt, they would return to captivity in Babylon. 
was thinking of this. Do we know what this means? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. When I was a kid at school, we used to play a game called Mercy. You guys ever play that game? It's kind of a guy's game, I guess. Or a, a boy's game. The idea is that you interlace your hands with somebody else and you try to inflict as much pain as possible so that they say mercy. <laughs> then you win. Like, yes, I'm, I'm tougher, I'm stronger, I have better technique than this other guy. So it's quite the antithesis of mercy. It's like saying uncle. Now, I looked up the definition of mercy in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. It's a little long, but it helps because, as he points out, there's really not a word in English that sums up exactly what mercy is. He says, that benevolence, mildness, or tenderness of heart which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. The disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment to inflict less than law or justice would warrant. In this sense, there is perhaps no word in our language precisely synonymous with mercy. That which comes nearest to it is grace. It implies benevolence tenderness, mildness, pity, or compassion, clemency, but exercised only towards offenders. Mercy is a distinguishing attribute of the supreme being. When a criminal cries for mercy, it's an acknowledgement of guilt. It's also an acknowledgement, it's a hope in the goodness of somebody else rather than justifying self. So cry for mercy, it's saying, I'm guilty. I have no justification for what I've said or done. And my only chance at not dying today is that you are merciful. You forbear. You forgive. You're compassionate on me. We appreciate mercy when we've done wrong. Do we offer it freely and generously to others? Mercy. Now, we're going to turn to the book of Matthew. You could turn to Matthew chapter 9. There's twice in the book of Matthew that Jesus quotes this exact passage in Hosea 6.6. Both times he addresses the Pharisees and scribes, the rulers of the people, who should have had the knowledge of God. Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, spoke with them. They had the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, but they didn't recognize him. Hopefully, we'll come away from this having a better idea of what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not, call to come, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this is a claim to deity that can fly under the radar a little bit, but notice how he continues with the personal pronoun I, where he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I 
did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he's saying, I said that back then, and I'm going to continue saying it now. I'm not changing. They conversed with the author of Hosea 6.6. They had no idea that it was him. Jesus showed mercy on Matthew by going to him and calling him, didn't he? Tax collectors were not loved among the Jewish people because they were seen as part of the oppressive regime of the Romans. And they would often use their power to enrich themselves uh, dishonestly. So they, were, they would steal. They had this reputation for stealing from the Jews to enrich themselves, being Jews, because the Romans would hire Jews to do that. Jesus walks up to Matthew while he's on the clock. He's in his office, and he just says, follow me. And Matthew just drops what he's doing, no two-week notice, and he's out the door. And that night, he has a feast, and he invites other tax collectors and sinners because tax collectors were outcasts. They hung together. They didn't have a lot of friends among the religious elite. They were shunned by them. And when the Pharisees saw that Jesus sat and ate with tax collectors and sinners, they asked his disciples, they say, what kind of rabbi is this that he's eating with these sinners, these tax collectors? Jesus hears this. And he says, it's the sick who need a doctor. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not call, come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees were self-righteous. They thought they were blameless because of their discipline to keep the law and how they tithed and how they offered their sacrifices in accordance with the law. But they didn't know God. The lack of mercy towards sinners... It demonstrated their ignorance of God. Because he's like, if you knew me, you would be merciful as I am merciful, even to tax collectors and sinners. There was another occasion where Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field of grain on the Sabbath day. You can go to Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse um, 5. They're walking through the field on the Sabbath day, and you know on the Sabbath you weren't allowed to harvest anything. And the Jewish rulers over centuries had devised measures for what constituted uh, harvesting or not, what was legal and what was illegal. And um, they broke with tradition because as they walked through this field and they were taking of the grains and kind of... Uh, threshing them, right, winnowing them. They were removing the husks and just eating the grain raw. And the, the Pharisees were offended. They're like, hey, these guys are breaking with tradition. They're breaking the law because it wasn't in the written law, but the oral law handed down by the rabbis. And Jesus points out their hypocrisy. He says, hey, you know, David ate of the showbread that he's not permitted to eat, not being a priest, and you don't call him an evildoer. You don't call him out for, as a sinner because he did what he had to do in his time of need. And he continues in Matthew 12, verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath 
and are blameless. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And he's saying, there are priests who work in the temple. They're working. They are on the clock, on the Sabbath day. But because God has commanded them and they're obeying God, they are blameless in what they do. And he says, there is someone here, pointing to himself, I love that, who is greater than the temple and greater than the Sabbath. Again, pointing to his divinity. The disciples were walking in obedience to Christ through that field. And they were perfectly justified and permitted to eat of that grain as they were doing the Lord's will. They weren't breaking the law. Jesus says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. The Pharisees may have been hungry at that time. And they were a bit envious, perhaps, that these disciples were eating and getting away with it. They were making this sacrifice that these guys weren't making. And so what did they do? They condemned the guiltless. And that's what happens when we do not show mercy. We can condemn those who are actually not guilty at all. We become guilty because we're not being merciful. God had mercy on the hungry. He provided for them by his grace. So the questions that come to me is, do I avoid associating or do I judge or condemn others, outcasts, because of different convictions than me? Ignorance of God, it leads to condemnation. It leads to judgment in self-righteousness. What does mercy look like? And it's hard to find pure examples because a lot that passes for mercy is often self-serving. It's kind of a trade-off. I'll be merciful to you as kind of a future favor waiting for me. Like, I've kind of been nice to you, so at some point I'm looking for that favor to be returned. Mercy is shown in many ways. It's shown by calling sinners, by conversing with the self-righteous sinners as well. Because Jesus didn't withdraw himself from the Pharisees when they were in terrible sin for not showing mercy. He he loved them both, tax collectors, sinners, even the self-righteous Pharisees. He spoke with them. He revealed his truth. Mercy shown in prolonging a time of peace and prosperity when sin calls for judgment. Mercy is revealed in a lesser punishment than what's deserved. It's compassion shown upon those who deserve death. Now, no amount of mercy is going to put off um, judgment, affliction, or death for those deserving of it, but God is merciful. There will be a reckoning, but God retains his mercy. Now, the last passage we're going to go to is in the book of Lamentations. If you want to turn there, uh, it's after Song of uh, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Yeah, so in the Prophets. The book of Lamentations, it was penned by the prophet Jeremiah. And he was witnessing the destruction, a future destruction to Hosea's day of Jerusalem. And 
chapter after chapter, and these are long chapters, he's just describing the horrors of war and being besieged, and it's rough. It is a rough thing. That you're, if you just looked at that, you'd say, how could God possibly be merciful here? Because the place, their people are starving. There's, there's dead bodies lying in the streets. People are eating their premature babies, stillborn to survive. Like it was just horrific, awful things that were happening. This chapter, it begins with, Chapter 3 of Lamentations, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again. Throughout the day, he has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. And he goes on and on. And I just read this to provide a bit of context to how bad and how dark and how horrid things were in Jerusalem. And then there's this bright light, this ray of hope that comes through. And it's because of God and his mercy. Jeremiah realizes the only reason why they're alive or they exist at all or would live to endure is because of the mercy of God. So after sorrowful days, many long chapters of woe and lamentation, verse 22 of chapter 3, and it's like, such relief to read this through the lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the lord is my portion says my soul therefore i hope in him the lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the lord it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach for the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. To those who are doing it tough, it's an empty promise to say, if you make this sacrifice, this will be the reward. This will be the benefit. Things are going to be great if you do this thing. But the truth stands is that while we are alive and remain, and even in the presence of the Lord, his compassion on us is renewed day by day. Like every day, there are new mercies to receive and to walk in. And he says, his compassions fail not. Great is his faithfulness. Our faithfulness is like a morning cloud, but his faithfulness is great. It's eternal. It's enduring. The world cannot offer hope, help, healing, salvation, rest, but God has through Jesus. And did you get that part where it says about being smacked in the face? Let him give the cheek to one who strikes him and be full of reproach. And it's like Jesus comes into the picture suddenly. He gave his cheek to those who buffeted him and who ripped out the beard. It's the mercy of God who sent us a savior, a redeemer, a healer who loves us, Jesus Christ. God allowed Jesus to be afflicted for our salvation 
so we could have new life, so we could be forgiven. We have received of that mercy through faith in him. God mercifully applies the rod. He does afflict, but it's always measured in, in duration and in severity. Not for our destruction, but for our restoration. God desires mercy and not sacrifice, but Jesus became a sacrifice for sin. All our sin was placed upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Isn't it so amazing that God would give his son, that Jesus would lay down his life so that we could be called like a tax collector, worse than tax collector. He's just doing his job. But we can enjoy fellowship with God. We can enjoy a new life, a future that cannot be taken away, reserved in heaven for us, that we can have abundant life through Christ and have every need of ours supplied forever by grace. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Let's not run from the one who afflicts to restore, but seek him because his mercies are new every morning. And let's learn by experience, let's put into practice what he has said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Whilst giving him the praises that come from a contrite heart. That's a sacrifice he will not despise. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God, a merciful God. Even as doctors have, have knowledge of how our bodies work, Lord, you have far infinitely greater knowledge of our lives, the purposes uh, for our life, and that you desire for us to live before you all our days. And I pray, Lord, in our affliction that we would turn to you. We would run to you. We would not run away from our only source of life and salvation. Thank you, Lord, for helping us. Thank you for being merciful to us. Thank you that in the despairing, difficult times of life, you are near to us when we draw near to you. That you will never leave or forsake us. And that even in judgment, Lord, you are gracious and merciful, slow to, slow to wrath, full of compassion, that your mercies are new every morning, that you are faithful. Lord, may we show mercy. May we be those who offer uh, mercy to others, that we would not be self-righteous or judgmental. We would not be as the Pharisees who felt they were pure and holy in themselves because of their sacrifices. Lord, bring us to a place where we are like David, contrite and humble, giving that sacrifice of praise. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters and the hope of Jesus Christ for uniting us as one through faith in him. And I pray that you administer your comfort and your peace upon every heart here today, that we would recognize and acknowledge how faithful you have been and how great your mercy is toward us and how worthy you are of being praised and honored. In Jesus' name, amen.